hi guys. All right. I have to start off with a public service announcement. Not a cool public service announcement graphic. Here it is. I did not want to me- preach this message ever. So this is a message I didn't want to preach, but I felt like I needed to preach. So know that going in. Here's why I'm saying that. For a while, so for the past few months, we've been focusing around here on how we can live the life to which Jesus has called us, right? How we can live the life to to which Jesus has called us, not how we can just acknowledge or identify with the life to which Jesus has called us. We're talking about how we can put more motion in our devotion. Because this Jesus movement to which we have all been called was revolutionary when it was founded 2,000 years ago. And unbelievably, it's still revolutionary today. When we decide to follow Jesus, when we make that decision, we become brand new people, okay? Becoming a brand new person means that you're no longer the same person that you were. That makes sense, right? Now, in the Christian world, it means this. We're no longer of this world. We're no longer technically a part of this world. So we've been called to not only look at the world differently than we used to, But we've been called to understand the world, to understand all the things that go on in the world differently than we used to. That means that we are called to live in the world differently than we used to. And we're called to interact with the world differently than we used to. And we're called to react to the world differently than we used to. All right. I'm going to guess that if you're a Jesus follower... You didn't find anything that I just said objectionable. Is that true? It it makes sense. In fact, you might have even said something like that yourself when you were talking to another person about Jesus. It's very standard. Anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, she's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, all pretty standard Christian stuff. So, why would I not want to preach on this topic? It sounds like a crowd pleaser, doesn't it? And who doesn't like a crowd pleaser? But can we talk? Over the last few years, a growing movement has swept our country and has swept the entire Western world. And that movement is undermining the cause of Jesus. And I think that many people in the church, and when I say the church, I'm not talking about Hammock Street Church per se. I'm talking about the church, the whole body of Christ worldwide. I think that many in the church have been caught up in this movement, probably without even realizing it. Now, let me walk you through my thought process. This is going to be a little bit of a rant. Um, It's a shorter rant than it was when I first wrote it down, but you're welcome. Follow the the line of reasoning. In 2006, Facebook publicly launched. 2006. Do you kind of feel like it was more recently or longer ago? What do you think? I don't know. It's hard to tell, right? But by 2009, 
which is, by the way, when I came to this church, by 2009, Facebook had 350 million users. Now, in the beginning, Facebook was incredibly useful. When my sons were young, now they're 26 and 28, but when my sons were young, I was able to keep tabs on what my sons were doing all the time with their implied permission. So they would post stuff online, and I would see it, and I would know whether to stop them or not. Or friends would call me. We have a two-floor house, and maybe the kids would be upstairs doing something or downstairs doing something, and I'd be upstairs, and I'd get a text from a friend. Did you see what Dylan just posted? I go online, and I go, Dylan, take that down. Yes, Dad. So it was really useful. I was also, and I'm sure you've done this too, I was also able to reconnect with old friends and old classmates with whom I'd fallen out of touch. So th those things are mostly good. Those are mostly good things. The same year, 2009, Twitter launched. The same year or the year after, Instagram launched. And then in 2016, TikTok launched. Now, I'm telling you this not because this message is going to be about social media. It is not. But I'm telling you this because I want you to look at the impact that social media has had. See, each one of those platforms that I just named, you see them up on the screen, they're unique, each one. But in the years since their launches, their respective launches, they have changed dramatically. How so? Well, each platform has not only become more robust, it's, it does more. They allow for video content. They allow for direct access to both legitimate merchants and to countless illegitimate scammers. I'm dealing with a scammer now. It is not fun. But more importantly, they've also taken on a central role in the lives of billions of people around the world. From, from mostly benign beginnings, as places where people could post pictures of themselves, lots and lots and lots and lots of pictures of themselves. If you're my age, you probably have pictures that you remember being taken, like single pictures. Like I remember a picture of, of me and my uncles when we were children. I have uncles that are my age out on a swing in my aunt's backyard. One picture I can remember to this day. I've never forgotten the picture. We used to remember pictures. Now there's so many pictures of us. And pictures, by the way, in the early days of our meals and our vacations. But, but social media sites have changed and they've evolved to become places where a majority of the people in the, in the country go to get their news. A majority of the people in the country go to social media sites to get their news about what's going on in the world. And they've also become places for people to gather together in these virtual communities of like-minded individuals. And what we do in these virtual communities is we just repeatedly affirm each other's already formed opinions and biases. And while we're in those communities together, we lash out at anyone and everyone who might deign to hold an opinion or position different from ours. This phenomenon has led, and this has been really interesting, and they're going to look back at this when people are studying this history, and they're going to go, wow, wasn't that weird? But it's led to a near total decentralization of news reporting and information dissemination, and that, in turn, 
has led to not only a hodgepodge of reliability and credibility and factuality, but it's also led to an incredible sense of distrust and division that has seeped into our culture at large. Duh. Like, we all know that, right? I know you're smart people. I know you all. You're here, so clearly you're smart people. But I wanted to go through this exercise to set up a topic that I think is of vital importance to the Jesus movement to which we all belong. You see, as the followers of Jesus, it is critical that we understand what we're seeing, that we understand what's taking place around us, and that we understand what part we've been called to play in it all. A few weeks ago, as everyone knows, a lone shooter attacked a Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee, killing three adults and three nine-year-old children. Absolute, horrible, tragic tragedy. That said, the national discussion following the shooting almost immediately devolved, and it devolved along predictable, well-worn paths down into the established political positions and camps. One side placed all the blame for the attack on the shooter's actions, as well as the shooter's mental health and the shooter's stability, along with the level of security at the school, while the other side placed the blame for the attack on the equipment the shooter used, and the criticism and the treatment that the shooter was said to have been exposed to and ex that the shooter experienced for the shooter's choice of lifestyle and practices of lifestyle. Now, I'm guessing here when I say that, nearly everyone in this room has already decided which side best represents their position regarding the event, and they have separated themselves accordingly from the other side. Everybody chooses sides. So far, nothing I've said is very surprising. But the Tennessee shooting gave us yet another bright line example of the spirit of divisiveness or divisiveness of our society. And that is the focus of the majority of the chatter to which we are exposed every waking moment. If you listen to the news, if you read the news, you are exposed to this blah, 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 blah about how divided we are all the time. There is absolutely no argument that we're living in a moment in history when society's divisions are at the forefront of our daily lives. Which is really funny, because if you walk around in town and you go shopping and you go to school and you do your things, you really don't run into the division at all. It's not actually happening with, happening with the people, but we're told it's happening everywhere. People are talking about the union splitting and about succession, all this, all this crazy stuff. We can't go a minute without being reminded of how deeply divided a lot of people think our nation is. And while the differences of opinion are nothing new in a free society, there's always been division in a free society, these days things just feel different. And I attribute that division in large part to the weaponization of the topic I started with this morning, just a few minutes ago, social media. You see, here's what happened, and, and we need to know this is happening to us. Not long after social media became prevalent, kind of got its hooks into society, Facebook was the first one. They figured out a way to monetize the service. They figured out a way to make a ton of money by people clicking on and viewing the sites of people and businesses. Well, 
took about a second, all the other social media platforms followed suit. And by observing human nature, and by observing the patterns of viewership, the social media platforms easily determined that biased, controversial, extreme, or outrageous content and news draws more eyeballs, draws more viewership, draws more clicks, draws so many more clicks than unbiased, neutral, or what we would call traditional content. So what do you think happened? Naturally, each platform put all of their efforts into creating biased, controversial, extreme, or outrageous content that would draw more viewership. And you know something? It's been incredibly successful. The social media users and the content consumers found themselves caught up in this web of content creators and probably, mostly unwittingly, ended up siding with one side of the political divide and accordingly vilifying, making villains out of the other side of the political divide. And as time went on, a majority of the content consumers fell in love with their side and increasingly became disgusted by the other side. Now, by the way, this is the same thing that people have always done. This is nothing new. Even before the advent of social media, social scientists will tell you people have broken off into tribes as long as there have been people. And as long as there are people, people will continue to break off into tribes. They're affinity tribes. You like to be around people who think like you, look like you, act like you, talk like you, eat like you, so on. Yeah, that's just what we do. That's what we're human. So if humans have always done this and will always do this, why am I taking the time to talk about it? Well, here's why. Because now this phenomenon is infiltrating and is impacting and is tragically infecting our ecclesia. Again, the world at large, not our church. I'm really happy to report that we are very balanced here. This is pretty amazing. We're doing a pretty good job of keeping it to ourselves in the good way. But the ecclesia as a whole is dividing. It's dividing the people of Jesus. And that is causing many Jesus followers to lose sight of the mission and the kingdom to which the one true God has called us. And as we lose sight of that, we tend to replace it with something else. And it's being replaced with the siren song of politics and priorities to which the false god of this world beckons us every single day. Guys, we need to turn this around. And we need to turn it around now. The way that we as the body of Christ, can begin to reverse this division is by coming together ourselves so that we can find our way back to the mission to which we've been called. And to do that, we followers of Jesus need to refocus on the way that we've been called to understand the world. You with me so far? All right. What is the way? Well, contrary to so many of the deafening voices that are beckoning us to follow the way of the world, ours is a calling to follow the way of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So today and next week, 
We're going to be using the book, not in it to win it, to take us through the steps necessary to get there. As the people of Jesus, it is critical, critical for us to make every effort, every moment of every day to ensure that we stay focused on the main thing. What is the main thing? That we stay focused on representing the irresistible good news of Jesus to our community and leading lost people into a life-transforming relationship with him. All right. Before we dig in, let me just say up front, you don't have to buy the book. It is not necessary for you to buy the book. We're going to be covering the main points of the book this week and next. With that said, I give this book my unreserved recommendation. I rarely give an unreserved recommendation. I assure you, if you buy the book, if you read the book, if you take it to heart, it'll change you. And it might just be the thing you need to be that unifier in our hyper-divided world. So with all of that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning, first morning after Easter. We thank you for the community that you're building here, bringing diverse and different people and backgrounds and ideas together as one voice to proclaim your greatness. God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that you would help us to learn from your word and then apply it to our lives. We thank you, God. We love you, praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it's easy to lose, the sight, lose sight of the things that we value the most. And it's also easy to lose track of the things that we fear the most. And as we go along in the world, we're, we're faced with a lot of uncertainty. And no matter how old you are, you know this. When you're young, you have different things that scare you because they're uncertain. As you get older, there are other things, but they still scare you. But it's when uncertainty rears its ugly head that things get real, and they get real, real quick. Now, it's important to know this. Uncertainty does not change. It doesn't alter our value system. Rather, and think of it this way, uncertainty exposes our value system. Meaning that during times of uncertainty, the way we react to the uncertainty gives us away. You can learn a lot about a person when you watch the person react to uncertainty in their life. And you can also learn a lot about yourself when you pay attention to how you react to uncertainty in your life. Actions speak louder than words, but reactions, our reactions to the circumstances and to the things around us, that tells the whole story. How you react tells the world what you believe. And so many Christians' response to the political, social, economic, and health crises of the last few years expose their true value systems. Oftentimes, it's hiding beneath Bible-laced rhetoric or, or just perfunctory claims of faith. But underneath that, you can see a hidden agenda. This hidden agenda has been exposed, an agenda that people outside the church have suspected about the church all along. Look at this. People outside the church suspect that the same things that drive them, the people outside the church, drive the people inside the church. They believe, people outside the church, that the same things that drive every ideological movement drive the local church as well. And when it comes right down to it, their suspicion is 
And unfortunately, what too many Christians make it seem like, their suspicion is that the thing we believers value the most is winning. And apparently, a lot of Christians fear the same thing that every other ideology and every other group fears as well, and that is losing. Apparently, we Christians fear losing our influence or losing our voice or losing our rights. And here's the irony. When the church loses sight of When the church abandons its Christ-ordained mandate, we do lose our voice and our influence and our opportunity to be the conscience of the nation. Whenever the local church reduces itself to kingdoms of this world aspirations, which are to win at all costs or to have our way or to protect our rights, Whenever we do that, we become just like another political group or another party or another constituency or another faction to be courted and then to be divided and then to be turned over to the various political parties to support whatever they support. Whenever the body of Christ in general loses sight of its God-ordained mandate, we lose the very thing that so many Christians feel like we need to fight to maintain. But we, the followers of Jesus, listen up. We aren't here to win culture wars. And we certainly aren't here to win elections. Is it just me or did it get a little warmer in here? Stay with me. Don't throw anything yet. To understand what I'm getting at, it's going to require just about all of us to set aside for just a minute, just a minute, all the political, all the religious, all the patriotic stuff with which we've been bombarded and in which we've been marinating, some of us since 1979, as well as the often misapplied demands for politicized justice and unmerited mercy with which we've been blasted more recently. So now let's set our foundation. If you're with us this morning, you're either a Jesus follower or you're at least checking out becoming a Jesus follower, or considering becoming a Jesus follower. What does that mean? Well, you've heard me say this once or twice. To become a Jesus follower, a person needs to understand and agree with the fact that each of us is born into sin, and that this sin derived from Adam's sin, from the original sin from the first man, and has devolved, has come down to us over the ages as his descendants and that we're powerless to escape this sin, and therefore we need a Savior. You also have to understand that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, God the Son, as that Savior, who lived a sinless life, so that he could serve as our substitute on the cross. And there God put all of our sins on him and punished him with the punishment that we deserve. He died for our sins because he had no sin himself. He came back from the dead. He went up to heaven, and he promised one day to return to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. And when we turn in our hearts and minds from the way that we were to the way of Jesus, making him Lord and leader of our lives, from that moment on, we are forever connected to the God of the universe who will never leave us. Now, God tells us that as Jesus' followers, he has a specific plan for us and path for us while we live out our earthly lives. 
Here's some of the things that he said. He said that even though we remain in the world, all of us here today are in the world, we're no longer of the world. We're no longer a part of the world. We are no longer, get this, citizens of our nation. Rather, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we're here as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, carrying on in this world as God's ambassadors. And while we're here, here's what God has told us to do. We are called to love one another, our neighbors, and our enemies. And we're called to take this message throughout the world, to the ends of the earth, as we make disciples. We're supposed to be identified by the outsiders by our love. And we're told that we need to model all of this in a way that makes the lost people curious, that makes the lost people want to know, that makes the lost people come up to us and say, how can I become a part of this Jesus movement too? Everybody with me? All right, let's keep going. As we opened up with in the last 10 years or so, understandably, society has become more divided than it's been in generations. And along the way, inexcusably, the people of Jesus have seemingly abandoned nearly all that we know about this. We've abandoned nearly all that we know to be true, and we've followed the world around us down the same path that they are on. Well, historically, church communities have been built around certain mutual affinities. This is how you build a church community. Taste and worship style, some like traditional, some like contemporary, fondness or familiarity with preaching styles, some like people that shout loud, some like people that are quiet, some like people that wear suits, some like people that have tattoos, whatever that is. People used to gather around denominational loyalties. I'm a Catholic, I'm a Methodist, whatever, or denominational preferences, or even theological distinctives, what some people think about how you baptize versus another. Notwithstanding all of that, most of God's people still stayed on mission. The mission that God has given to his people to love him and others, including our neighbors and enemies, to be a witness and to make disciples and to take all of this to the ends of the earth. But nowadays, the people of Jesus are finding themselves divided over issues that have absolutely nothing to do with our God-given assignment and instead have everything to do with the political proclivities of whatever side of the political divide we've gravitated toward. And in doing that, we've not only alienated every lost soul that desperately needs God in their life, but we've also generally represented to the lost people around us a version of Christianity that bears no resemblance to our being people who belong to an irresistible God and to being a people who take, who take guidance and direction from that irresistible God or who are called to be a part of the life of the irresistible God. It seems that in our current culture, in our current climate, way too many churches have set themselves up not to lead the lost to Jesus, but rather to alienate half the population. That's insane. Churches on the left, if you will, churches on the right, if you will, by definition, alienate half the souls in America through their unchristlike rhetoric and behavior, and also through their politically-based fear-mongering and posturing. The churches that focus on the political right continually 
demonize Democrats. And they're positive all Democrats are condemned to hell. But the churches that focus on the political left do the same thing. They demonize all the Republicans and are sure they're going to hell. And far too, Jesus, far too few Jesus followers are pointing out to them the obvious. If whomever, right or left, is destined for hell, doesn't that make them the mission field? Isn't that our goal? To go to the people who are destined for hell and, and bring them home? Doesn't that make them people we should love and not demonize? If each side is alienating half the people in America over political views, aren't they, in truth, abandoning the very thing that Jesus has called the church to do? Aren't they abandoning the very thing that Jesus has called the church to be? The thing that Jesus was most concerned about when it came to the future of the church was not. It wasn't our theology. It wasn't our music. It wasn't the way that we baptize people. It wasn't the way that we do communion. The thing that Jesus emphasized was unity. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it, John 17. Jesus said, to God the Father, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through my disciples' message. Here it is, that all of them may be one. That's my prayer for all the people, that you all may be one. Jesus said, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I can't help but believe that over the last few years, the church has missed an unprecedented opportunity to live and react in contrast completely differently than the world around us. All of us, by the way, to some extent have done this, myself included. And this is exactly, exactly what the Apostle Paul warned the first century believers not to do. Now... If you're sitting here, if you're really tracking along with me, you may find yourself thinking, come on, give me a break, that's not realistic. There's, there's no way I can love people like that. Pick your side, doesn't matter, you feel the same way. But I want you to think about this. When Paul said that, it was exponentially more unrealistic for the believers in the first century. Watch this. To the church in Philippi, here's what Paul said. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. If you want to get up and leave, now you can. Really? Everything? That, that kind of feels un-American, doesn't it? We're supposed to grumble and argue. And when Paul said something like this, there's an underlying assumption. The underlying assumption is that the believers he was talking to were grumbling and arguing with each other. And Paul was telling them, knock it off. A lot of Paul's letters basically can be summed up in knock it off. Now we may be thinking, come on, Paul. How can we win if we can't complain? And if we can't argue about the things that are going on in our world that we don't like? Where's the win in that? To which Paul would respond, funny you should ask. Here's what he says. Here's why he wants you to do that. So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God, here we go, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Maybe you've heard this before and you didn't even stop for a minute and think, what does that mean? Like, what did Paul mean by a warped and crooked generation? 
Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever found yourself asking this question? What the heck happened to our country? Have you ever felt, found yourself saying, we have become a nation of whatever, fill in the blank. Crazy people, deviants, whatever it is, your blank will be different, whatever you think society's problems are. But if you're saying that, then you've been saying what Paul's been saying. We've become warped. Warped means out of balance. We've become an out-of-balance society. So Paul was saying, if you're concerned about this current warped generation, Paul's saying, I have great news for you. You have the potential to make the difference in your world. That's amazing, right? That's what we always think. We go online, we post something, we think, I have the potential to make a difference in my world. But you're not going to do it, Paul said, by grumbling and arguing with everyone else. Because if you do that, people are going to think you're just like everyone else. Instead, Paul said, if you choose not to grumble and argue the way the world grumbles and argues, then... You will shine among them like stars in the sky. In other words, you choose to not do that, not grumble, not argue. The contrast between you and everybody else will be so evident that people will have no option but to see it and to notice it. Over the last 10 years, the church as a whole, along with many individual believers, we've lost some of our shine. And I'd like to suggest that we, we take this time and work together to get our shine back. And I know it's not going to be easy. It's very straightforward. It's very simple, but it's not easy. So how do we do it? First off, we need to stop arguing and grumbling with one another. And we also need to stop arguing and grumbling with them, whoever them is for you. That's the thing to which God has called us. We need to do it even if we want to do it. We need to not grumble even if we're inclined to feel like we'd be selling out if we don't grumble. Fight that temptation. Now, by the way, Jesus told us the exact same thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Let our light shine before others that they might see something different that there might be a contrast, that they might see our good deeds, that they might see something on the outside and glorify our Father in heaven. Now, I understand. At first blush, this seems like a call to surrender to the way society is going or a call to surrender to the bad actors who are trying to create a world in their image. Surrender to the people so that they're getting all the power in the world. That's what it seems like. And I don't know about you, but I don't like the sound of that kind of surrender. I don't like it one little bit. I can't stand being pushed around. I don't like it. And I'm sure you've heard the outcry, we have to fight. Our liberty is at stake. Or our way of life is at risk. Or children are dying. Or this one, which this makes me absolutely insane. And if you've said it, I'm not talking to you individually. Don't think I'm calling you out. I'm not. But this, one, this one's the worst. We've got to do something. You ever get stuck in traffic and you're really upset that you're not going to get to your destination for an extra hour? So you decide, I'd rather drive two hours so that I don't get stuck and be delayed one hour. That's doing something that's a waste of time, right? What does it mean to do something? You scratch your nose, you're doing something. We've got to do something. Something. 
these battle cries just caused Jesus followers to insert ourselves into the exact same battle that the politicians and the culture influencers are fighting. And listen up. That's not our calling. The ecclesia, the body of Christ. Jesus told us that this ecclesia, this body of Christ will prevail. Jesus said the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's really funny. People usually interpret this meaning somehow gates are attacking things. That's not how this works. This is the body of Christ pushing into hell and destroying the whole place and the gates won't hold it back. Not even the gates of hell can stand in the way of the body of Christ. Don't take my word for it. Think about it. Rome could not shut down the ecclesia. The temple could not shut down the ecclesia. Communism could not shut down the ecclesia. Socialism could not shut down the ecclesia. No other ism was ever able to shut down the ecclesia. God is simply not that weak and not that fragile. The ecclesia is one of the most powerful, consequential forces in human history but we sure haven't been acting like we know that. Sadly, as the body of Christ, right and left, we have given up the high moral ground. We've sunken so low that we even demonize and criticize people that we've never met. We call out people by name and demonize and criticize them, and we've never met them. And in so doing, we've confirmed what some of your kids and some of your grandkids, and some of your neighbors, and some of you suspected about us all along. We've confirmed their suspicions that we don't actually believe what we claim to believe. Demonizing people in the other political party, whatever that means to you, has become an exercise in virtue. <laughs> and that's not very virtuous. And it's not what God has called Jesus' people to do. We've got no business participating in any of that, even if we're convinced we're right even if we are right, because Jesus addressed these issues a long time ago. Now, I understand. Believe me, I understand. We're standing up for the truth, though. We're not going to be intimidated. We're fighting the good fight, like the Apostle Paul said. We are in it to win it. And listen, as a man, as a martial artist, as an American, as a person, I am drawn to that notion. I love that notion. We're going to fight the good fight. We're going to argue, and we're going to win. I'm a lawyer. I love winning. And that sounds great. Until you follow Jesus through the Gospels. Or until you follow Paul from Greece to Jerusalem to Rome. So as un-American as it sounds, and as weak and as passive as it sounds, the church is not here to win. Think about this. We talk about it all the time. By every human metric, we just saw it on Easter weekend, by every human metric, our Savior didn't win, right? Jesus didn't win, he lost. But he lost on purpose, with a purpose. So if you're a Jesus follower, that's your mandate too. And the difference is in the doing. Jesus instructed you to let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So like our Savior, we are not in this to win anything. We're in it for something else entirely. When we allow our faith, when you allow your faith to be subjugated to 
or co-opted by our political party of choice, we lose our voice, we lose our distinction, we lose our way, and we lose our opportunity to be the thing that God has, has, has called us, has assigned us to be, the conscience of our nation. This means that the nation we love suffers because Jesus didn't come to win the way we define winning. Jesus came to lose, and he invited us to follow him in the kind of win that he was talking about. Now, the Apostle Paul understood this, and Peter understood this, and the Jesus followers in Antioch, who were the first ones called Christians, understood it. The gospel to which God has called us changed the world, and that gospel changed families, and that gospel changed communities, and that gospel changed entire cultures. Now, now's a good time for me to point out this. I am not suggesting that we should withdraw from the political process. I am suggesting the opposite of that. We should become more politically involved. Every single person of voting age should vote. After all, we are we the people. Anytime we have an opportunity to vote our law of Christ informed conscience, we should vote. And not only that, some of you might need to get involved in politics, local politics, state politics, maybe, maybe even national politics, run for office, run for senate, who knows. But lean into the process. But, and it should go without saying, remember that mean tweeting and rage posting and screaming at your computer or screaming at the radio or television is not what it means to get involved in the process. That is not getting involved in the political process. We've been called to love and to care so we have to do everything we can to create and protect a culture of human flourishing which is fueled by the love and care of God. We've been called to do that, to love and care in God's name. We should be very involved because we are very grateful for our nation, but our posture and our tone and our approach must, not should, must reflect that of our Lord. Because when you follow Jesus, you don't get to choose what following Jesus looks like. And you don't get to choose what following Jesus sounds like or acts like or reacts like. Those things have already been prescribed for us as Jesus' followers. In his letter to the believers in Corinth, Paul actually tells us what the win looks like for us, for the followers of Jesus. And it's not the win the way the world understands the win. Paul told us what his strategy was for winning, and I think you're going to find this helpful, but I want to give you a little background first. Remember that God called Paul to take on a seemingly impossible job. Think about this. God called Paul to go into a Gentile culture, a pagan culture, a polytheistic culture, a culture that believed in many, many, many gods. Remember Greek and Roman mythology we took in middle school or high school? That's just the Greeks and Romans worshiping many, many, many gods. And God called Paul to go into that culture and not just talk to them about Jesus, not just introduce another God, but to ask them to abandon their entire worldview to follow Jesus, to abandon everything they'd ever known, what they devoted their whole lives to, what their family had always known, abandon all of that to follow Jesus. Paul was inviting Gentiles to think differently about everything and everybody that they'd ever encountered. That is a huge ask. And here was his strategy. And by the way, Paul's strategy, our world would find incredibly passive and incredibly weak. But by the way, I want you to keep in mind, Paul's incredibly passive, incredibly weak strategy 
along with Jesus' incredibly passive and incredibly weak ideas, ended up shaping Western civilization. These are not weak at all. These are incredibly powerful. Here's what Paul said. Watch this. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Now, Paul was writing in a time when the entire economy of the world rose and fell on slavery. And it was a time when nearly every person in the world could potentially end up as somebody's slave. This was not racial slavery. This was poverty slavery. You owed somebody money, you couldn't pay it, you have to work for them, you're stuck. So here we read that Paul chose, here's what he did, he chose volitionally, voluntarily, to make himself a slave to everyone. Now if you're paying attention, you want to ask, a slave to everyone? Like, Paul, does that include people you don't like? To which Paul would have responded, especially the people I don't like. And we go, wait a minute, do you mean you'd make yourself a slave to people you disagree with? And Paul would respond, especially to the people I disagree with. See, Paul decided to place himself under, to serve under everyone. But Paul had an agenda, an agenda given to him by his king. And here is Paul's agenda. I've made myself slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. And with that, we see the only win about which we should be concerned. Winning as many people as possible to Jesus. Paul's goal was to win people away from from their worldview, their ingrained worldview, whatever they think is right, whatever they think is true, however they think to run the world, to a new way of seeing everything, a new way of seeing everybody. And you go, how naive is that? How weak is that? Paul's strategy was to submit and serve. To submit to and serve people as a way of influencing them. And you go, Paul, there is no way that's going to work. Here's, Paul keeps going. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. A few words here for a moment. We thought Paul was Jewish, right? What the heck? What's that about? Well, Paul was Jewish, his religion was Jewish, that's what he followed, but he wasn't considered a Jew in those days. He was considered a Jewish person from Tarsus. Tarsus was a Roman-controlled city before a Greek-controlled city in modern-day Turkey. So Paul grew up there as a Hellenized Jew. He grew up as a Jew in Greek culture. It's kind of like I'm not an Israeli, I'm an American Jew, but I, I grew up here in American culture, but I'm still a Jew. In that day, a Jew was a person who lived in Judea. It was limited at that time. So Paul was saying, even though I grew up in a different culture, even though I grew up in a modern Greek culture, when I moved to Judea, I blended in with the Judeans who were in charge of the temple so I could win them to Jesus. That's what he did. Next, Paul says this. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. A lot of law in there. Here's what it means. Paul says, I can also get along with the faithful, observant Jews. And I can do that to win them to Jesus as well. Then he says, to those not having the law, the Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Basically, Paul's saying, I can also blend in with those who don't have the law, to the Gentiles. I can blend in with the Gentiles to win them to Jesus. And as for that parenthetical about Christ's law, it's helpful to think of it like this. Paul served under the law of his king. Paul served under the law of King Jesus. If you're considering 
If you consider yourself a Jesus follower, you're accountable to that same law, to the, life, to the law of Jesus as well. And the law of Jesus is very simple. Love God, love one another, as God through Christ has loved you. And then love the people around you in the same way. Love everybody the way that God, through Christ, has loved you. So in sum, here's what Paul's saying. As I interact with all these different cultures and all these different people, in order to win them over to seeing the world in a different way, I am under Christ's law. Christ's law will determine my tone, my posture, and my approach. I am going to love others as he loved me. I'm going to one another, one another, regardless of their political views, of the one another's that I am one anothering. Got all that? Why? So as to win those not having the law. Guys, this is the place to which we've been called. Is this a middle position? Kinda, but it's not a compromise. And it's not a capitulation. And it's not an affirmation of whatever the bad things are that you think other people are doing. It's not a surrender to them. It's exactly where God wants us to be. It's the exact place to which God has called us. This is the stand that the people of Jesus are biblically mandated to take. We must not politicize the ecclesia of Jesus. We don't get to make any of this stuff up. This was prescribed to us by our king. We are standing against alienating half the people in the United States by siding with one political party over another. We are choosing to stand with Jesus in the lonely, messy middle. And we're choosing to do that rather than capitulate to divisive, broad-brush political talking points. So Paul finishes up this section with a summary of his mission and strategy. Here's what he says. I have become all things to all people. In other words, Paul said, I have learned. And this is something that all of us need to learn. And some of us are going to find it simple, and some of us not so much. But notwithstanding, God's directed all of us to learn how to build and navigate relationships with people with whom we have virtually nothing in common. Why? Wouldn't it be easier just to surround ourselves with people who look like us, live like us, talk like us, act like us, think like us? Why? Paul says, so that by all means, so that by all possible means, so that no matter what it takes, including being misunderstood or left out, even including being mistreated, so that by all possible means, I might save some. That's it. That's the win. Saving lost people. This survived the first century because Paul refused to bend to the prevailing worldview of his day. Paul was convinced, as are we, that God had done something new in the world and he'd done something new for the world. And Paul wasn't going to let it be co-opted. And it didn't fit into any existing political bucket. It was something that was for the world. It was in the world for the world. And in spite of everything going on in the world, Paul was convinced that he held the high moral and ethical ground. And he didn't feel compelled to win something. Why didn't he? Because he knew that Jesus had already won. Which means that the world had already won. So here's how Paul wraps this up. I do all this. So here he's basically saying after making all these connections, talking to all these different kinds of people who do and think things differently from me, you know, 
talking, figuring out how to relate to people, figuring out how to effectively, how to lovingly share God's word with them. Paul says, after all of that, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. How about we just keep doing that? Because when the church becomes preoccupied with saving America, it has forsaken its mission. When the church becomes preoccupied with defending its own rights, rather than advocating for the rights of other people, the church has lost its way. See, the church always looks better when advocating for others people, other people's rights rather than our own rights. And I'm going to finish up with this today. Pastor Tim Keller, some of you guys know who he is. Great theologian, pastor up in New York. Here's what he said. This is really interesting. When the church is no longer seen by the outside world as speaking to questions that transcend or go beyond politics, and when it is no longer united by a common faith that transcends politics, then the world sees strong evidence that Nietzsche and Freud and Marx were right. Then the world sees strong evidence that religion, Christianity in particular, is just a cover for people wanting to get their way in the world. Now, isn't that how your unchurched friends and family members see the church? When the church is divided, and when the church allows itself to be subjugated to anything other than the gospel, it looks like we're just leveraging our religion in order to cover for ourselves, in order to get our way in the world. So let's resist that temptation. Let's not do that. Every time you place your hand over your heart to say the Pledge of Allegiance, you're advocating what we're talking about. One nation under God. God, our King, first because our ultimate allegiance is to the better King. And here's the thing, and you know this because you've experienced this. Our uncompromising devotion to our better King will ultimately make America a better nation and will ultimately make the world a better and safer place. And we know this not because we're trying to predict the future, but because we can look back at the past. We can look back at history, and that's what history attests to. Next week, we're going to talk about us, and we're going to talk about specifically what we do next. So please don't miss part two of Not In It to Win It. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for giving us something to aspire to individually, but also as your, as your people, as your ecclesia, as your church. And Father, wherever this lands with us, whether we're all in or we're not ready for it yet because it just seems too passive, give us eyes to see what would happen if the church in the United States rallied around the simple idea that Jesus, the King, the Son of the living God, who informs our lives and our lifestyles, and our posture, and our tone, and our approach. Let us know that he is in charge. Help us to envision what would happen in our communities and in our world if only everyone would know Jesus. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and the courage to lean in and to respond and to let go of anything that impedes what you want us to do in and through and as your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.